dear Polygamy listeners. If this is your first time tuning in, I recommend that you start in order. This podcast is meant to go in order, so you can go all the way back and start at episode one, follow the history, and then you'll have a little bit more context for what we're talking about today. I know a lot of people have been listening to it backwards or sporadically, but remember the podcast is meant to go in order. I won't nag you about it again, at least not for a few episodes. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today we're talking about something really interesting that I hope everyone pays attention to. Whether you are interested in these issues or you come from a Mormon background, one of the Mormon groups, or you are living in the Inner Mountain West and you live in Utah or Arizona, this is a very important topic that I think everyone needs to understand. We're going to be, talk about what is going on in the town of Short Creek, which is, of course, Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. And it's most famously known for hosting um, sort of the headquarters of the FLDS. In the last 20 years or so, Warren Jeffs has sort of really um, consolidated his religious group down in Short Creek. And of course, we've talked about the history of Short Creek on the podcast. But now it's sort of in a big transition, transitional period, and we're going to talk with some people who are part of that transition, people that are going to know these issues probably better than anyone else. So I'm really excited today to welcome Shirley Draper, who some of you might know, she's involved in a lot of activism. She's um, helped a lot, of, a lot of people get resources in the town when there, were, when there was absolutely nothing. And Shirley grew up in, in the community, and now she works tirelessly to help this community. And she's also on um, the board of trustees for the UEP, which we're going to explain what that is. Shirley, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. So, Shirley, you're coming to us from St. George? Yes, where I currently live. Excellent. Okay, and also with us is Jeff Barlow. He is the executive director of the UEP. He comes from the community as well, and he's a lawyer, and he's going to explain these issues for us. Jeff, can you say hello? Hello, how are you doing? Fantastic. And I, and I need to point out to the listeners that these guys are being super gracious to me. We recorded this yesterday, and my power went out, and we lost everything. And these people have stuff to do, and they're willing to re-record, so I really appreciate that, you guys. Um, let's, let's just get into it. I want to explain what the UEP even is. So let's back up from the very beginning and talk about Warren Jeffs, the United Order, and how it all gets started. Okay, so um, th- this, is, this is Jeff. I will uh, kind of give you a brief background of how we got from uh, a small community down in the Short Creek area in the 1940s all the way to where we are today. In essence, it was a, a group of uh, fundamentalists that had, uh, some of them had been prior members of the, F- of the LDS church and had, and had uh, moved away, began their own community, uh, formed their own religion, and part of their core belief was communal effort or community, community property. And so they all took their homes and their homesteads at that point, deeded them into a trust, and that trust was called the United Effort Plan Trust. And so in essence, this entity held ownership to all of the homes in the area. Uh, alongside of it, they also formed a church, but the United Effort Plan Trust has always been sort of separate from the church, uh, and it, it, it's owned the homes. And that's how it operated for a number of years as a private trust holding title to all of the land. 
And then in about 1998, Warren Jeffs, uh, through a, a, a series of events, uh, became, became, became the leader of the church, and he reformed the trust, uh, taking it from a private trust to a charitable trust. Uh, I think the primary purpose of that was to eliminate anybody making claims against the trust if they if they left the church and somehow wanted to keep their home uh, he was trying to eliminate their legal ability to get their home they had had a few lawsuits and had lost a few life estates and so they were reacting to that and that really was part of the problem is that in order to stay in your home the trust owned it in order to stay in it you had to be in good standing with the church and if you ever decided to leave the church or if the church ever decided to excommunicate you, uh, along with your excommunication came a notice to move out of your home in the community and leave town. Well, in, in 1998, when that trust was reformed, uh, it became a charitable trust, and really that became the legal hook that allowed the state of Utah to oversee the trust. In a charitable trust, the AG the, uh, of the state that it's formed in has the obligation to monitor these charitable trusts and make sure that they're following the law. And when Warren Jeffs in the early 2000s uh, became a wanted fugitive and was on the FBI's most wanted list, uh, a few people sued the United Effort Plan Trust. Warren Jeffs, as president of the Board of Trustees of the UEP Trust, did not respond to those lawsuits and, in essence, uh, opened up the UEP Trust to some pretty uh, serious default judgments. Now, at this point, the trust had grown to be uh, 750 homes, uh, hundreds of commercial properties, a lot of vacant land. And so it was a significant trust uh, with, I think at the time it was estimated at least $110 million of residential and commercial property. And so when these default judgments started to come down and, and Warren Jeffs was not responding in, uh, in court, um, the AG of the state of Utah stepped in as he should pursuant to Utah law and uh, summonsed in the trustees, uh, the court opened a probate case, and, and in essence, they had no choice but to appoint a new management team of the United Effort Plan Trust. And so in 2005, they appointed a, a, an accountant out of Salt Lake named Bruce Wisen to manage the trust as a court-appointed fiduciary, and he managed the trust from 2005 clear up through 2016. Um, and he was sort of, uh, I, I guess, a, a one-man operation who was given specific court orders, and he answered to the court. But one of the first things Bruce did under court order was to reform the trust again, and that was a significant change because under the UEP that Warren Jeffs controlled, you had to be in good standing with the FLDS church in order to live in the homes. And so what was happening is that Warren was excommunica excommunicating hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, family after family uh, was being, were being evicted out of their homes and, and excommunicated from the church. Uh, and in 2006, when Bruce Wisen, through his attorneys and through court oversight, reformed the trust, the major change that was made is that you could get benefits from the trust regardless of your religious affiliation. And so all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, all of these people who'd been kicked out of their homes and excommunicated could now move back to the community and move back into the homes they built. And it kind of created almost a reverse migration where everybody started coming back to the community because it was allowed now under the trust rules. 
as long as you have participated in building the trust, helped on building homes, uh, contributed in any way, you are now a participant that could receive a benefit. And so from 2006, clear through 2016, uh, Bruce Wisen administered the trust under court oversight. People began moving back into their homes. And in 2016, another significant change occurred. And that is when uh, the judge overseeing the UEP trust case appointed a board of trustees. That judge decided it was time to have a local board of trustees that managed the trust. Uh, and he selected seven members. Uh, it, it actually, there was two judges. Judge Lindbergh was overseeing until she retired. And then Judge McKelvey took over the case. And then through both of their efforts, a seven-member board of trustee team was established and empowered. And those seven members now administer the trust. And they have been doing so for about nine to ten months, somewhere in there. And uh, and it's it's been quite quite the journey. But the but the main goal is to get people back into their homes and create some stability uh, in economics, in housing, uh, and just and, and get get families stabilized. Okay, awesome. Thank you. That's a good uh, sort of explanation to start us off here. So I'm going to kind of back us up for the listeners and talk about. On other episodes, we have talked about. Um, the United Order, the doctrine in Mormonism. So it starts, of course, with Joseph Smith trying to institute or at least talk about the Order of Enoch, which Brigham Young sort of plants a seed in his heart. And by the 1860s, he actually tries to institute it for a time. They have small communities like Orderville where they're living the United Order and they're trying to do this. So this is a thread that that not only is part of Mormonism, there's other, you know, Zionist movements that, that believe in some sort of communal living like this, but Mormonism really has it built into the doctrine. So, of course, the FLDS are trying to live the United Order in a way that makes sense to them. So they're all compiling their property and their, and their money and all of their assets into this UEP, the United Effort Plan. And of course, my understanding, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but when people were engaged in this United Order, they thought that they were signing over their families as well, not just their property, but everything. So their wives, their children. Is that true? I I don't know what the original intent was. I don't remember that ever being a topic of discussion um, in our home. And of course, you know, when I was being raised there, we weren't living the United Order. It was always an ideal. And we we knew that, you know, we all lived on trust property and we knew that the trust owned the property. Um, but we weren't living the United Order the way that we were taught. It was always going to be lived. And so... Um, when when Warren reinstituted the United Order, and, and that's what the community's been living under for the past however many years, ten years or whatever, then he, uh, my understanding is, is that everybody at that point, it was they were giving everything over. They were consecrating all of their personal belongings, all of their food, sewing machines, you know, clothing, everything. And at that point, I'm sure he said something about families because um, that's when he really started to to take families apart, destroy the family structure. And that um, obviously would have given him that kind of power if they believed that that was part of the United Order. So that might sound silly to some outsiders who think, well, you can't give your family up. But we need to remember that when you live in an isolated community and maybe um, you aren't being educated in, I mean, I went to a public high school and we talked a lot about secular issues too, but I didn't 
I didn't come out of my high school education knowing all of my rights and property laws and things like that. I really relied on my community and my parents to tell me what the way of the world was. And so it makes sense to me why some people would be confused. And this this is an issue more to talk to Roger Hool about, who is helping reunite you know mothers with their children again. But I just want to talk about how important this is for people who are on the outside. They don't really understand that people really are giving everything. And it's going to sort of set up the mess that you guys are left to clean up with. Because as you said, you have all of these homes. I want you to picture this town down there. It's, it's a town with, at one time, there was, what, 10,000 people living in the town? Yeah, that sounds like a fair number. Yeah, so we've got 10,000 people living in these homes and these aren't these this isn't like a normal neighborhood. You know, that this is the thing that struck me when you go down there, these are like 5,000 square foot homes is like your average home or bigger. I mean, they're big large homes that were meant to fit plural families. And I I want people to try to understand, picture your town, everyone's living in your house and you and then you're kicked out of your home. And you come back and your house is already occupied by somebody else that Warren Jeffs has now put in your home. This is the complicated issue that the UEP Trust has. So let me say this back to you, Jeff, and tell me if this is the situation. So the UEP, the United Effort Plan, is put in place. Warren Jeffs tries to reinstate the United Order. The federal government eventually comes in and seizes it because Warren is abusing the rights. He's kicking people out of their homes. They think they don't have a right to their house and they're left homeless. So people are being kicked out. And so the federal government steps in to take control of this and they have this oversight for a while and then they give it to the board of trustees, which is you guys. So it's really turned over with local control in the last nine months. And now your job is to figure out who lives where and who goes where. But the problem is, is a lot of the FLDS are still living in some of these homes, correct? That, that's correct. And let me just clarify one thing. The, the, the federal government has really nothing to do with this. It's all, it's all being managed by the state of Utah. And even the state of Utah has pretty limited control. All they did is file the initial motions that got the case that the UEP trust pulled into a probate action. So really, it's one judge overseeing the the fiduciary for the first 10 years and now that same judge overseeing the local board of trustees but but yeah you're you're absolutely accurate in the sense that uh, many of these homes in fact i'd say over half of the homes are still uh being controlled by warren jeffs and the flds and they're moving people in and out of homes without really having any permission from the uep trust and then on the other hand, you have all of these people that have been formerly kicked out coming back into town and petitioning for the homes that they build or the homes that they're interested in. And, and so you really do have sort of two groups of people, the, the people kicked out and coming back and then the people that are FLDS wanting to stay in the homes. And, and it is quite a, quite a challenge to manage that. Okay, yeah, thanks for the clarification. Shirley, do you think you could put sort of a human face on this? Give us an example of a family that you know about. You don't have to, you know, name names, but give give our listeners an example of what this looks like to an individual family who might have been in the FLDS, who were sent away. What, what does this look like for them? A lot of times when a family was sent away, 
um, they weren't necessarily all sent away together. So like a dad would be sent away and, and the mom and the kids might stay there for a while and the mom might be sent away and the kids taken away and given to somebody else. And, and you know, to get to the, your previous point about the United Order, women and children really were turned into property and and women were treated like currency, honestly, by Warren, um, the way he would take a woman away from a man to punish him and give him give her to another man to reward him. Um, and it, it's really quite pathological. So he's destroying people's um, sense of security and belonging by by creating property out of people. Right. And then he's destroying their sense of security in housing because people know that if they displease him, they'll be sent away. So he's sending away all of these people. And, and then they're left with nothing. So if a family or a mom or a dad or even an intact family, if they happen to survive, come back and they're saying, you know, we realize that this was unjust and this, this shouldn't have happened. I want my house back. And it's occupied by somebody else. Then this is what we're facing. And then the other people that are occupying it aren't paying taxes either, by the way. And so, so we're really looking at a situation where, where we have to figure out a way to keep these homes from being sold at tax sale and the person who built it might want it back. But so I can just say for one of my family members, he was sent away and his family was sent with him. This was this was one of the intact families and recently came back to the community petition for a home and they're now they're now back living in the community. Now their children are in school and it's a safe place for families to transition because the schools are so much more culturally sensitive. The kids are able to transition in a way where they don't have really cultural context for other schools. They don't know about Santa Claus. They don't know about the Easter Bunny, those kinds of things. They don't know about Madonna. And so for them to move out of the community and try to go find a safe place for them to be anyway after Warren has kicked them out is really, really difficult. And so, you know, we're looking at the other side of the people that Warren has abused. We're bringing them back in and getting them back on their feet and making sure that their kids get in school and that they're safe and intact. That's that's a great way to put it. And that's been my experience, too. You know, I've talked to families who I'll just give you an example of one that I know. It was a family living up in Salt Lake. It was a plural family, but the kids would have been belonged to their mother and their father. And when Warren instituted some doctrine, I can't remember the timeline on this, where he said that you could sort of marry up in the priesthood, this woman decided her husband wasn't worthy enough and exchanged her husband for a more worthy uh, priesthood holder. So they moved, she moves her family down to Short Creek. These kids are now assigned a new father. And um, they go in and they sit in their church meeting, and Warren stands up and he gives out what he calls corrections. And he corrects their father, their new father, and basically, sorry, he corrects their family and he sends the father away to the YFC ranch. And now these kids are on their third father and they're being moved from home to home to home while their parents are being either sent away or the kids are being sent away. And I, I don't think listeners can understand the disruption that has happened in the last decade with these families being split up. You can go down to Colorado City and see an FLDS home and the kids there don't necessarily belong to their biological parents. Uh, a lot of siblings are not with their original siblings. The families are all shuffled. It's, it's really sort of a human rights disaster because People are being shuffled all over with no accountability. There's rumors of human trafficking to Mexico and to Canada and and to things like that. But property is a huge issue, too. Warren Jeffs has property all over. And so, um, Jeff, can you tell me, the trust doesn't just oversee the Short Creek properties, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The UEP trust does have property that's outside of the Short Creek area, 
Um, there's there, there used to be a farm out in Burl, Utah. That farm has now been sold, but we managed that property for some time. There's a, a little farm up in Fillmore, Utah, and there's a ton of property up in Canada. There's an entire community up there of residential homes and commercial property and wooded uh, timbering land. And that property is, is uh, all part of the United Effort Plan Trust as well. Do we know where the other, who holds uh, the rights to the other compounds like in South Dakota or in Colorado or Nevada? My understanding is that they're just putting each of those um, compounds in different members of the church's personal names, but I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I know that it's been, most of my information, of course, I get secondhand. Someone comes into my office and says, I'm ready to move back to Short Creek. Uh, what homes are available? And I begin helping them line up their petition and get them a meeting with the Board of Trustees. But in those discussions, I have a lot of uh, actually really interesting conversations about their history and how they got here. One of the issues that I hear quite regularly is, you know, I was a faithful member of the FLDS church and Warren put a bunch of this property on this compound or this boat or this different personal or real property in my name. And then I got kicked out and I still own it. It's still in my name. So my understanding is a lot of that property is just put in faithful members' names uh, and, and that's kind of how it's being held. And, you know, this is something that blows my mind about the FLDS community. So I come from the LDS community, and I remember, you know, we grew up in tight-knit little wards or whatever, which are some of my best memories. But sometimes you'll be talking to a neighbor, and you'll say, this is what the prophet wants us to do, or this is doctrine. And your next-door neighbor will say, I was never taught that. That was not something that I was taught. And you'll have these little cultural divides, but it's pretty easy to reconcile, right? But in the FLDS, it's like that, but on speed. I mean, people literally do not know what their neighbors are doing, where they're going. It's this huge confusion. I was talking to a group of women down in Short Creek who some had gone to Texas and just sitting, you know, they were all sharing stories. And it was this moment where they were like, I never knew that. I didn't know you went there. I didn't know people were going there. Warren really created this culture of confusion. So like you were just saying, Jeff, people's experiences are so diverse. You can come from the same religion and community and have a completely different experience and interpretation of what Warren was asking you to do. And that that kind of blows my mind that he was able to assert that sort of control by confusing people so much. Well, the thing I, I would definitely give, give, give uh, I guess, the, I get the blame or the credit, however you put it, uh, to, to the the stated goal of secrecy. And really what happened is that all of these FLDS members were uh, were told, you're not allowed to talk about this. If you go to the YFC Ranch, for example, it's a secret. The location's a secret. The fact you're there, is, you're, you're even there is a secret. You can't tell your own family. Uh, you know, I've been a member of the LDS church now for about 15 years. And, and I'm telling you, it's a, it's a world of difference. Uh, even though the, a lot of the, the core, um, I guess structure maybe appears similar. Maybe some of the we use the same hymn book or the same the same doctrinal books. They're they're not even in the same realm because I'm allowed right now. I can go to church. I can go meet with my ward and I can have an in depth discussion about you know some new teaching and whether I agree or disagree. And we can have a pretty lively debate. And in fact, we often do. And and debate and trying to understand things is encouraged, right? Well, in the FLDS culture, I, I, even when I was a kid, uh, that, that wasn't really encouraged. I mean, to, to depart from the norm, 
uh, was frowned on. And if you started doing something that everybody else wasn't doing, people would look at you like you were rebellious. And under Warren Jeff's regime, it got even more that way. It was everything was very strict. You didn't deviate. You didn't question. You didn't if you were told to do something that you didn't understand, you didn't ask why you did it or you were penalized. And so you're right. This culture of secrecy and uh, it's absolutely created this crazy uh, environment where you'll have a brother and a sister who are both in the FLDS church who have no clue where each other live. They're not allowed to talk about their family structure. And it's not until they're out of the church they finally can compare notes and see what each other was doing for the past 10 years. Uh, I've had a couple experiences exactly like that. I just wanted to throw in that, um, you know, the secrecy isn't just from the inside, you know, what each other is doing. Warren has so orchestrated keeping the people in the dark that they literally don't know that he's in jail for child sexual assault. They think he's just being persecuted and he's being hounded for no reason and he's innocent. Um, they don't know that Lyle's on the run. Many of the people that I've spoken to are asking for help with food and the, and the like because they've relied on the church for so long and they're not getting it. You know, the word I always get is, well, Lyle's looking for me for something, but in the meantime, can you help me? Which is really, really interesting. The absolute cone of silence that Warren has managed to enact around these people is is quite horrifying in that they don't know what's going on. They don't realize that the taxes aren't being paid on the on the properties. They are paying taxes to the hierarchy and so they think they're being passed along. So it's this kind of secrecy that that forces them into this ignorant stance that that's creating the problem that we're dealing with here. I'm so glad you guys are bringing this up cuz this was one of the shocking things of you know when I come down to Short Creek there is this great like small town community feel that I love. And it reminds me of my Mormon experience, um, which the thing that I value about being Mormon is this sort of homogenized culture. And I know some people like make fun of Utah culture and things like that. But I really valued that we all kind of knew what was up, you know, our, even though, like I said, you could have doctrinal differences or maybe be taught something a little bit different in your family. We all kind of knew the culture and the standard. And I really expected that in this tight knit community in Short Creek and to find out that it was so radically different. That was, that was just such a cultural shock to me to realize that my Mormonism was really based on this culture of like, Je like Jeff explained and, the FLDS have, at least not in the last 20 years, have not been able to experience this under Warren Jeffs. So let's talk about the complicated parts now. So you have families that are coming back. They've been sent away and they realize they can have their home back. They come to be reintegrated into the, the community that they grew up in, that their parents grew up in, and they come to get a house. So what's the process? Because I've heard, I've heard some rumors that, you know, that it's sort of this struggle in Mormonism, like, you know, we have this in the LDS church where you've got your angry ex-Mormons that are trying to persecute the Mormons, and, and maybe there's an angry FLDS that want to hurt the FLDS, and so you guys are trying to kick them out of their homes, and you're giving them an hour to move out, and um, really just trying to stick it to the FLDS church. Tell me the process of what it's like to get a home back that might already be occupied by believers. Well, well, first of all, I, you know, in my experience, I worked as a one year as an attorney under Bruce Wisen, and then now I've worked as about a year as the executive director for the new board of trustees. 
and in my experience, the, the, the former fiduciary and especially now the board of trustees has tried to be extremely even handed and has tried to be fair to everyone. Now, they fully understand that the F- members of the FLDS church are participants of this trust and they're they're the very people that we want to take care of. Uh, but it's just a broader class now. Not only is it the member of the FLDS uh, the current member of the FLDS Church, but it's also all of the ex-members that have moved away, or there's even those that are not members of the FLDS Church anymore that have just stayed stubbornly in their house and they've never moved out, even though the, even though they were told to. So you've got quite a diverse group, but the Board of Trustees is is absolutely determined to take care of everyone who's willing to do their part, and so the process goes like this. Uh, anybody can come in and fill out what's called a petition for benefits and they identify their need. This is the number of people we have. This is our financial situation. Uh, this is where we're currently living. Uh, and this is what we want. This this home fits our needs for the following reasons. Sometimes I build it start to finish. Other times it's the home that I grew up in and my parents have moved away and they don't want it anymore or my parents are deceased now. And so they identify all of the facts that they think are important for the board of trustees to know in this written petition. And then the next step is we line them up with a personal interview where they come in and meet with the board of trustees in a one-on-one interview, well, one-on-seven, I should say, and they meet the trustees and they they answer questions and talk in more depth about some of the more sensitive uh, things in their petition. And then the board of trustees has a second meeting where they, they vote Uh, discuss it and then vote and they either grant or deny the petition based on whatever rationale the the board of trustees uses. And so there's a really even handed way for people to start the process, get, get a petition filled out, meet the board and get granted an occupancy agreement and live in a home. And that goes for people that are even in a home without permission. They can come and fill out a petition and get an occupancy agreement and stay in the home that they're in. Now, Every time the Board of Trustees has to authorize an eviction, uh, whether it's because the person that's in there doesn't have permission to be in the home, the taxes are behind, the $100 court-imposed occupancy fee is being ignored, uh, whatever the reason that the eviction is is, uh, undertaken, we always give people that are in the home the ability to, with one phone call, to, to, to call the trust and work it out and stay in the home. And in fact, our notices state that as our primary goal. We want people to stay in the homes. We do not want to evict. Uh, usually evictions are being driven by forces that are outside of our control, such as when a house gets to be four years tax delinquent, we have to evict. We have no choice because in both states under Arizona and Utah, when you hit that five-year mark, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. In the state of Utah, they take the deed and they auction it on the courthouse steps down in St. George, and that house is gone. The trust lost it. And in Arizona, they start selling the tax liens after even one or two years of delinquency. And at the five-year mark, whoever bought those tax liens, whether it be most of the time it's private companies out of Las Vegas or California, they can come and foreclose on the property. So here you have a board of trustees that is watching this tax delinquency timeline. And when it hits three years, it's stressful. And when it hits four years, it's critical. And so that's really what has been driving most of the evictions. And that frees uh, frees up the homes for all the people that are wanting to move back into the community. So that does sound even-handed and fair to any other society. But what what about this complication and this critique, which is 
Warren Jeffs's current law, his religious law, is you're not supposed to pay money. You're not supposed to interact with apostates. And now the board is made up of apostates, people that were in the community that have left. And so the, the people living in the home are in a really tricky situation because if they are following their religious beliefs, they can't pay the taxes. They can't talk to you. They can't give you a phone call and say, hey, give us another month. What, what do you do in a situation where, where does the idea of religious freedom and, and discrimination come in? Because from their perspective, I would imagine that they feel quite persecuted. Well, I'll answer that in sort of th- in, in three parts. First, just to dispel the notion of religious freedom, uh, there, 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 is, there is religious freedom in this country, and there's no doubt about that. It's constitutional, and it's a fantastic thing. But nowhere in the Constitution does it say that you're completely free from the consequences of your religious choices. Uh, for example, if my religious belief was to you know, uh, sacrifice a goat in the middle of I-15 once a day, there would be a consequence to that, right? I could get arrested for impeding traffic. I could get hit by a car. I could cause health and safety issues. And just for me saying, oh, well, this is my religious belief doesn't exempt me from all the consequences under the law and under just the reality of getting hit by a car. And that's kind of what's going on here is they're saying, well, it's our religious belief that we are not going to comply with the UEP trust. Well, well, that's that's a convenient religious belief. That's completely inconsistent with the religion that I grew up in. When I lived in this town, my dad paid his property taxes faithfully. My dad complied with the rules of the UEP trust in order to stay in the home. And so really it's kind of a, some of these, quote, religious beliefs are more convenient instructions that are just uh, ordering the people not to comply. And I want to give you a, a, an example. Um, one, there, there's only three requirements to stay in a trust house. Number one, you sign an occupancy agreement. Number two, you pay $100 a month fee. Number three, you keep the property taxes current. That's it. And in, in, in any other community in the entire United States, I guarantee if you put those three requirements on a homeowner, they would jump for joy and they would love it. They love every minute of it. That's a very inexpen- inexpensive way of having housing. And, and, and in the past, the church allowed all of its members to come in and sign occupancy agreements. We had three or four hundred of them signed under Lyle Jeffs, uh, who was the bishop at the time, under his instruction. Tons of members of the community, the FLDS, came in and signed the occupancy agreement, and they paid their property taxes for a time period. The only issue they had was they didn't like paying the $100 fee. Well, we've never evicted over only the $100 fee. It's always been a property tax issue or someone moved in the house without permission and they didn't have an agreement to be in the house, and so we had to take action. Uh, the, the second issue you brought up was this idea that they can't deal with apostates and that puts them in quite the bind. Well, I have to point out the obvious, and that is Bruce Wisen was not an apostate. Bruce Wisen had, he, he was a fiduciary for 10 years. He had no affiliation with this religion, no affiliation with this town. He was, he was put in as a fiduciary as one of the largest owners of one of the largest CPA firms in Salt Lake. And so, really, they quickly created a rule that you couldn't deal with Bruce Wisen. And that may, you may call it a religious belief, but it has nothing to do with apostate. So I don't believe that the apostate argument is really why they can't comply. The reason they can't comply is because they don't want to and because the church is instructing them not to. And then the last thing I will point out 
is that the board of trustees, uh, they're, they're locals. This is, they have brothers and mothers and fathers that are members of the FLDS church. They understand this religion. They understand the culture and they are trying as hard as they can to create this, this clean pathway for people to be able to comply if they want to. For example, they've said, listen, you don't even have to pay the property taxes to us. You can go pay them directly to the county and you can never interact with us. Go to the county directly, pay your property taxes. We'll get the records from the county and update our records, and you will never have to interact on, on taxes. On the occupancy agreement, the church has already had its members sign those in the past. They, 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 they don't, that doesn't seem to be the religious objection. And in fact, it's required under the laws of both state that there be an agreement in place on real estate uh, such as this. So the last issue is the $100 fee, and even the $100 fee, the trustees have put out a deferment program where they say, listen, if for religious reasons you can't pay that $100 fee because you believe it funds the enemy or whatever you're being instructed, fine. Just we'll, we'll attach an addendum to your occupancy agreement. You can sign it basically saying the UEP agrees not to collect the $100 fee. You agree not to pay it. It'll just be deferred. It'll, it'll sit in a deferred status. But we commit that we will not evict over that $100 fee because the other two are completely doable. And of course, that hasn't slowed evictions at all because the truth is, is that the requirements are so minimal, they are not the reason people are being evicted. People are being evicted because they are choosing to not comply. And it doesn't matter what rules you put up, they're gonna say no and they're gonna get evicted. Okay, so you've clarified some things for me because the story that I was kind of aware of goes like this, that the FLDS faithful are good people, right? You guys used to be FLDS. You're good people. They're just sort of stuck in this really difficult position where they're trying to do what's right. They're trying to follow their leader. They haven't had the opportunity to have resources like other people have to sort of look at their religion through a different lens. So they're being really victimized by both sides here. They're being victimized by their church who is not caring for their best interests. That is evidently clear by all of the things that have been going on. And yet from their perspective, the government, um, the state, their city, their old friends and family, the trust is, is persecuting them and trying to get them out of their home. And so they're really stuck. And, you know, I thought that it was more of a, you guys were just really angry and wanted to get them out and get them out as soon as possible and you didn't care if it was fair but that's really not the case and especially since you guys have all of these these other mechanisms in place like the fact that they can go to the county I wasn't aware of that I think that that's such a good option that sort of deals with I think it it attempts to address and respect their religious beliefs even if like you said they're going to be stubborn but Jeff, you sort of paint this picture of, you know, like they're stubborn and they're defiant and they don't, they don't, you know, want to do this. But do you think that that's fair? Do you think that maybe, um, as in all religious beliefs, you know, I, I think about like the Bundy standoff that happened in Nevada and a lot of the people from the community were supportive of that because there's this deep seated idea of standing up against government control that, that is seen as patriotic in some ways. And so do you think that maybe from their perspective, it's not stubborn, it's the righteous thing to do? Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt that from their perspective, they feel like they're doing the right thing. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's not much you can do to combat that. If someone wants to uh, be, a, be a victim and they feel like that 
you know, they're they're painted into a corner. They're they're going to do what their religion tells them to do. That's been our our understanding and our our experience. But the reality is, I think the core of the problem is is that they've deviated. I believe they've deviated from their own belief structure. The one that I grew up with, uh, they've deviated dramatically from it. You know, the religion as I as I remember it, and as I was taught it as a child, up until uh, when I left when I was nineteen or twenty, was that it was centered around um, safety. It was it was centered around security. The reason that people put their homes in this trust in the first place was to protect their home against uh, foreclosure and against tax sales. And so this entire town, zero mortgages, no one got a loan. They build it with the money out of their own pocket. They build it with their own labor. They put it in this trust to protect it for security for gener- from generation to generation. The, the religion was a religion that was founded on keeping a family together. I remember when I left at 19, I could probably only think of one or two people my entire life that I remember getting a divorce. It was so rare. It was almost unheard of. Um, that the families would roll from generation to generation as these institutions of, of stability. Okay, so that's the religion that I grew up in. And then the, when Warren took over, everything became unstable, housing, families, relationships. And so I, I, I get what you're saying. I understand that people can feel um, persecuted and they can feel like they're doing the right thing. But in my view, just because you feel that way doesn't make it a reality. The, each one of these people have a choice to make and they can turn over their agency to the church and they can say, tell me what to do. And when that church tells you uh, husband and wife split up, kids, be, you're reassigned to somebody that's that's not even your biological parents. This house is being taken away. And when you start seeing these things done, I think you have a moral obligation to step up and, and, and begin making those decisions for yourself. And if you're going to let the church make the decision for you, then there's some natural consequences that come from that. So and I just wanted to throw in that, you know, it's, they're not necessarily above misleading people either. Um, a lot of the narrative is that we were only given one day to move out and those kinds of things, and that is beyond untrue. Um, we start the process many months in advance. They are posted. They know the rules. Um, we've had situations where a house is posted for months and then on when it's finally coming down and we finally have the court order and we're going to evict, all of a sudden they're calling in people with cameras and they're calling the governor and saying they're evicting us without notice over the holiday weekend. And, you know, and they're manipulating the truth and, and misusing information to make it look like that they're that they're martyred and persecuted when it's just not the truth. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because this is something that really sucks someone like me in. So everyone that knows me knows that I have this radical hippie heart. And so I hear a story and I get incensed and then I want to help, right? And um, I'm not saying that that's not necessarily a good quality, but I've learned in working with this community that that is not always the best approach because there is this culture of sort of taking advantage of the outside world and and justify the means with that. And so in in you know sort of my sympathy for this situation, I have since learned how there you know, there was a similar situation that happened with the YFC raid in Texas. Now, I come from this from a historical perspective, so 
talking about the Short Creek Raid in the 50s and all of that, there was this really um, intense sort of persecution complex that comes out of this. You know, families, little children praying as they see their fathers being taken in a police car. Some intense stuff that that really seems sort of un-American in this day and age. And when it happened in Texas, it was the same sort of thing. Children being taken away from their mothers, crying, you know, families separated and things like that. But when I, I, I heard a different perspective, which is women that were down in Texas saying, we were asked to play it up for the cameras. We were asked to cry. We were asked to really sort of ramp it up. And I've seen footage of the evictions and they're dramatic. You know, they're elderly women in the snow with their walkers and children pushing refrigerators, little girls. And, and so maybe you guys can explain this because this is something an outsider wouldn't, it wouldn't ever be on our radar. We would just, we would just see the theatrics and not necessarily what was really going on. I think the, the easiest explanation is to say that the eviction was completely and 100% avoidable. I mean, that that's right out of the gate. We don't want to have to evict, and if they'll do their part, which is so minimal, uh, then there wouldn't be an eviction in the first place. And secondly, uh, on those residential evictions, there is a long process that we go through on an eviction, and they're giving tons of notices. Uh, they're given tons of information about how they can end the eviction, and um, there's really no reason for that big, uh, sad uh, video that you've seen, which is once we get clear through the eviction process, we're at the very end of it, we show up with the sheriff and the locksmith, and in that moment, then there's this big dramatic standoff where they have to move all their stuff out. None of that should ever have happened because they should have picked up the phone and called us or just gone and paid their, paid their property taxes and worked out an agreement to stay. And if they weren't going to do that, they could have taken, you know, two two months to move out safely and in, in in the light of day, uh, and they could have been out of the home. Uh, by the time we got there to, to change the keys, they would have been long gone. So there, there's a lot of that really is theatrics in, in my view. It's just completely unnecessary. And in fact, I've personally gone as the director out to a couple of these houses where there was a lot of people that were still there. And I and I stood there and I tried to talk to him and said, what can we do to keep you in this house? Is there any way we can work this out? And I even had at one, at one eviction, one of the, in fact, probably the very one you're talking about where there was a lot of older ladies that were living there. Um, and one of the older ladies kind of looked at me and was saying, you know, was getting a little bit mad at me for doing this eviction. And I said, I said, well, there's, this is unnecessary. What can I do to help you stay here? And she said, oh, is staying here an option? I said, absolutely. And it became apparent to me that they were not given the information. They were never given the notices, that someone was taking those notices and letting them be evicted. And so I stood there and tried to have a conversation with her. And I said, it is so simple. All you have to do is these three things. And right in the middle of our conversation, one of the church appointed, um, I guess, young women that was in charge of the moving crew uh, you know, called her name and said, "Get over here!" And the, this lady left my left my presence and went uh, went away. To, and and that was the end of it. And it became very apparent to me that that these people are not being allowed to comply. Uh, they're being told what to do, and their end result is going to be that they're going to be moving out of the house, and we don't have any control over that. So that's sort of the crux of the matter, right? So when we talked about earlier with these people, how you know neighbors don't even know what their neighbors are doing. 
it really sounds like in these own households, the story that they are getting fed that I think really feeds the, the control narrative of Warren Jeffs. This is how he controls people is they're told a limited amount of information. And so they really do believe that you guys are these villains kicking them out, giving them an hour, because as far as we know, they think they have an hour, some of them in the home to, to leave. And so what that does is that makes them even more afraid of outsiders because it reinforces what they already think they know about you. But what- um, yeah, and I don't know how to speak to what they what they actually know. I can tell that their information is very limited. We've in each time there's been a miscommunication where we'll like for example the one hour. I, I remember when I saw a post about this. These poor people are being given one hour to move out of this building. I know exactly what building you're talking about, and I immediately picked up the phone and dialed the person. We had one phone number that we were coordinating with for them to move out of this this commercial building. And I called him and I said, I heard a rumor that you think you have one hour. And he said, well, I've heard that. What is our time frame? And I said, listen, any information from the trust will come through me. We're going to be as workable as possible. And by the way, we still want you to stay in the building if you're willing. He said, well, we're not going to stay. We're going to move out. How long do we have? And I said, you take whatever time you need. We'll be workable. And he said, oh, that's good to hear. So I don't know where the one hour came from. I have no idea. To me, it's I think it's being generated by people who are trying to be dramatic and trying to shape the UEP as this big bad, bad entity that's trying to hurt them. It's just simply not true. In fact, you know, this very guy I was talking to, I went to school with. I knew him. We were friends back when we were teenagers. So um, I, I don't know where these, these stories come from, but I think anybody that has a personal interaction with the trust would find this to be absolutely nothing but workable. And in fact, uh, our main goal is to avoid eviction altogether. And this is such madness to me. And this sort of really sums up, I mean, say what you will about Warren Jess, but he is really brilliant about creating sort of this, this confusion to maintain control, especially, you know, from doing it from prison. And I, I want to talk about an inconsistency that's coming up for me um, with the FLDS narrative, which is, you know, this idea of maybe not being able to pay to, you know, pay to apostates or things like that or talk to outsiders. So when people, when FLDS people are given all of these options and they still don't do it, they're evicted. And a lot of them, we don't know where everyone is going, but I've heard rumors are going, you know, to they're renting housing in Cedar City or some are coming back to Salt Lake. And a lot of people are starting to see more and more FLDS in normal community because they're moving now. They're, they're being forced, you know, to relocate. But now they actually have a house payment. I mean, you, you talked about this really good deal that they are given, which is no house payment. It's a hundred dollar a month fee and the property taxes, which really is a dream come true. And yet now they're stuck, you know, five families in a single family home paying rent. So do you guys want to talk about, about that situation and how they really, and I, I do think I can see how it'd be used to fuel their persecuted narrative. You know, now they're kicked out of their home and they're in the lone and dreary world again and, and all of this stuff. But really, I think it might highlight how good of a situation that they had it, even if some of them aren't aware of, you know, how good they have it. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yes, it makes perfect sense. And, and I want to speak to that a little bit. Um, it actually, I feel like, you know, this is, this is my social work side coming out. <laughs> not, not a trustee, but, 
um, just personally, this actually gives them an opportunity to understand that, to kind of examine, you know, what what the truth is. Um, once they do move out, they they are allowed or they do figure out ways and means of getting more information. And frankly, sometimes or a lot of times, and I'm told this by people who have moved out, that it was the best thing that ever happened to them. That once they were out from under the immediate control and watching eyes of everybody, that they were able to look around and say, what's really happening? And then they get educated and then they come back and say, I see. I was in this control and so moving away was the best thing that ever happened to me. And now I want to come back and sign an occupancy agreement. Uh, to me, just coddling them and allowing them to stay with the person who's really abusing them under the control of Warren is is enabling. It's not assisting in any way. It's like telling an alcoholic, just stay right there. I'm going to throw all this alcohol at you and, and make sure that you're never, never get uncomfortable so you don't have to make any other choices. It's not healthy. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is helpful. Exp Do you guys know, or can you speak to, I don't even know if you can, are there any faithful FLDS that are complying? Um, I can answer that. Uh, yes, there are. Now we obviously, we, uh, the UEP has committed to keeping people's personal information private. Uh, obviously, if, if the church knew who was doing what, uh, a lot of the people would be punished by the FLDS church. But yet the answer is, yeah, there are some who contact the trust, pick up the phone, and the eviction ends. And they're still in their home right now. Um, but obviously, they would be in trouble if the church knew that, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, and I would hate to jeopardize any of those situations, so we don't have to talk too much about that. I just, I think that this is helping clarify some of the, the stories that I've heard, because, you know, I do think that there are good intentions all around, but I do think also that you guys are in a really tough spot. I mean, you have to hold people accountable with the law. That's part of reintegrating into society, right? That's part of a healthy community is accountability under the law, checks and balances and things like that. And yet it's hard not to feel bad for this elderly woman you talk to who is not being fed any sort of information that gives her any options or resources. She is sort of a slave to the information she gets, which is very limited. And it's very clear to me now that you guys are trying every effort you can to almost to the point of um, complete leniency and I just think it's a tough and stressful situation. It really is, uh, Lindsay. And and I will say, you know, that elderly woman we were speaking about was a close relative of mine. And it made my heart hurt to see that she was being evicted. But it made my heart hurt when she was separated from her husband and told that he had gone to hell. And it made my heart hurt when she was told to, to turn her back on her children and that she could never speak to them again. And it made my heart hurt when she was evicted from her own home by Warren and, and shuffled around from home to home to home to home to where now she's in this home with a bunch of other women and literally has no family. I mean, when, when we say our heart hurts, we need to account for all of the ways that, that she has being manipulated. And it's, it's in her best interest to have the information and for us to just say, oh, the, the trust is victimizing her by honestly following our fiduciary duty. If we fail to do this, we are failing and the, and the attorney general would need to take over from our control. But to just say they are innocent and the only way that they're going to keep from being persecuted is for the trust to leave them alone is, is furthest thing from the truth. People need to know that they are being manipulated and exploited 
by their own authorities. <clears throat> and as soon as she is able to reunite with her family, as soon as she's able to move out and, and start getting some information, she is going to be able to, to be more whole and be more healthy. So I hear this question in my listeners' minds out there. They're probably saying, well, isn't there anything you can do? I mean, I, I hate to be dramatic, but I, I actually think this is apt. It reminds me of situations in like North Korea where, where information is so completely controlled. You have people sort of trying to drop, you know, information from airplanes down to the, to the citizens. And, and they're taught that if they touch those flyers that their fingers will burn. And so, and those thoughts are going through my mind. Is there any way that we could get this information out? And yeah, I've been there. I know how complicated it is, but from your perspective, is there more that could be done as far as educating faithful FLDS people about their rights? Considering all of the things we just talked about, how, how limited information is, how they're not allowed to interact with outside people or resources or education, and there is such a, a culture of confusion that Warren Jeffs keeps control over. Is there, is there anything that you think could be done? Well, um, I'm going to speak to this again because of the other work that I do. Um, we there's kind of an idea, I guess, that that the population is static and that Warren Jeffs has you know these five thousand, seven thousand followers and that they're the same people. The truth of the matter is, is that people are daily realizing what he has done to them and their family and are daily leaving. And so the number of people he actually has control over is is diminishing quickly. The attrition rate is really high. And and as people leave and, and as their family members leave, you know, moms are looking around going, well, all of my children are out and I know my children. And if there's something wrong, they probably know it. And they're reaching out and they're starting to ask the questions themselves because they know they can. They know they have lots of family and lots of friends who have left. And so I really th feel like this is kind of happening organically anyway. My job isn't to go and try to talk somebody out of their belief. My job is to support them in becoming whole and well, and it's happening more and more and more every day. And Lindsay, I'll add one thing to that. I, I echo what Shirley's saying. I don't think our job is to convince people to leave the FLDS church or to stay in the FLDS church. Uh, our job is to manage the property that's owned by the UEP trust. However, we understand that, that with that duty comes a, a big responsibility because housing is so vital to the stability of a family and so vital to the stability of the community. And so I see it as one of our jobs is, is to create choices and, and not to tell people what their choice needs to be, but, but, but to create that choice. In years past, prior to 2005, when the state intervened, people didn't have a choice. If they, if they left the church, they lost their family. They lost their business. They lost their house. It was brutal. And now in 2017, under the board of trustees, a family can say, you know, this this religion just doesn't uh, line up with with my personal belief structure. Uh, I think I'm going to go to a different church, or I think I'm not going to go to any church. And suddenly, for the first time, their housing is unaffected. They have the ability to stay in their house and make whatever choice they want religiously. And I think that's a, a valuable contribution that the trust is now making to say, you can stay in your house regardless of your personal choices. And by the way, the same thing could go vice versa. There could be a family that is atheist right now that decides to join the FLDS church and they could do that without any repercussion on their housing. That's our job is to create choices uh, to where to where they can they can get their house and they cannot be worried about that becoming uh, destabilized. 
And just um, one more thing on that, Lindsay. So um, the people who are looking around and realizing that all of their family have made these other choices and there might be something to it. And so they start to reach out. Um, I will say that almost weekly I deal with somebody who who has been FLDS and who contacts me and says, um, this isn't working for me anymore. Um, I'm looking at leaving. What would happen? What are my options? And so then I'm able to say, well, you've got some great options. You know, you can move away and I can help you with that. And we can help, you know, get your kids integrated into public school and stuff. But another of your options is to stay there and and to utilize the school districts and the and the support systems we have actually in town and and to enable them to just, you know, decide to stay where they are or, you know, make whatever decision that they choose. And, and having that ability, having the people in town that they won't be the only ones and that they won't be suffering the hate crimes of the FLDS, throwing rocks at their windows because they're the only ones in town, that's the kind of thing that's happening more and more and more. And so when we talk about this, this population who's being persecuted, um, honestly, it's a, it's a very, it's a shrinking, shrinking number. So what can people like myself and listeners do who want to help uh, help the work that you guys are doing, help support the transition of the community into a more healthy community? What are ways that outsiders can support what is happening? Well, um, a number of ways, actually. And I'm glad you asked because I'm very fond of, of giving people jobs. <laughs> But the the number of thing, one thing you can do is what you're doing now is making sure that the information gets out there, um, having understanding around the situation to where we don't have a lot of unnecessary drama and an un- unnecessary trouble, is is number one. Um, number two is kind of be an ally. You know, a, many many of the people in the community are deciding to that we want something different, and so organizing for you know running for office. So we have a different city council. Everybody's tr- pushing the v- registration, getting the people registered to vote, pushing you know bringing business back into town, and and getting banks to invest in the community again, which they haven't been willing to do for a number of years for really good reason. You know, getting the information out about how huge the school is getting and the and the absolute amazing growth. I mean, from when it started off with 80 kids or whatever, and now it's over 600. I mean, there's so much change in the community, and we really, really want to change the dialogue. We want to change the discourse that happens when people speak about the communities. We want to remake the communities into, you know, Americana, something you want to go and visit um, instead of just being the, the you know that polygamous town. So these are the kinds of things that you can do from the outside to help. And by the way, you can you can support the people who are doing the humanitarian work on the inside. You know, if people are interested in volunteering or donating, there are a number of really great organizations that are on the ground and that do have the trust of the people. Excellent. Jeff, is there anything else you want people to know? Well, I, I would just give you a little bit about my personal experience. I think I had moved away from this town swearing to never move back. And I went and did undergrad schooling in Chicago, went to law school at BYU, and was happy working as a prosecutor down in Arizona. And I was sort of recruited to come back and work for the trust. And I'll tell you, what Shirley's saying is, is spot on. Um, I, I even have a lot, had a lot of those preconceived notions about what this town was going to hold, and I had no desire to move back. But once I got here, uh, my wife is actually born in Oklahoma, raised in northern Utah, has been LDS her entire life. Um, and and, she, and I thought I was wondering how she was going to be able to handle and our kids were going to be able to handle living here. We moved here and within, I'd say, four months, 
we knew we were going to live here forever. It, it's a fantastic little community. There's a ton of people moving back. Uh, everybody is trying to be good neighbors. Uh, there's there's this sense that regardless of your personal choices with religion and with all the other social aspects, we can all be nice and treat each other kindly and have you know town events. And, and it's a fantastic little community. I think that the public's view of this town is so different than the locals' view now. Uh, and that's one of the things I would like to put out is just for people to to uh, to, to like as exactly as Shirley said to begin to begin uh, evaluating the community on its own merits now instead of uh, history or on on some of the, uh, the the stigma that's been attached in the past. It's a it's a vibrant, fun little community. There the counties are involved. There's a new library. There's new schools. There's sports teams. There's a lot of really great things going on, and uh, I think people just have to realize that even though this process is is painful at times and it's and it's certainly painful to us to watch some of the things that have to be done it's actually a really good process it's really healthy uh, sometimes I, I guess sort of cleansing the wound is part of the process in order to to get the the health and the regrowth and so we're, we're, it, it does appear painful but it's actually a, a good process and it and it deserves people's support yeah, and I, I, I've got to back up what you are saying because, you know, I've been in the town a few years now and literally every month I go down there, it's changing so fast. It's, it's crazy. It's like the town that I was in three years ago is not the, t- the town today. And yet one of the things I think I appreciate the very most about it is I can go down and meet anyone. And, you know, everyone that knows me knows that I'm a raging liberal and, uh, you know, like a crazy hippie like I said and yet I don't feel more at home than when I'm with people down there it's so loving and accepting it's a small town feel and I just I really appreciate it there it's like you said Jeff there is such people have experienced what it's like to be told what to believe and because of that there is this like reverse effect this openness where people really don't I mean no one is policing each other it's I, I can't even explain it other than when I'm there, it feels like I'm coming home. And I say that as an outsider, so I don't I don't mean to say that to be offensive, but I've just really appreciated the love and friendship that's been extended to me. And I would encourage people to go down and, you know, um, patronize the businesses and, and, and the restaurants. And you guys have great restaurants down there now and really good food. And I think you're just doing a lot of amazing work. Thank you for that, Lindsay. We really feel the same way. And um, it's not offensive when you say you feel like you're coming home because that really is, you know, the feeling. When I left there uh, 13 years ago, it was with this sworn promise of never returning. I never wanted to hear about it again. I never wanted to ever, ever cross that border again. And and just lately, you know, being back in the community and it's it's inescapable. It's home. It always will be home. It doesn't matter where I live. That is my home. And those are my people. And by the way, all of them are. Even the ones who, who still follow Warren, they're still my people. It is. It does not bring us any joy or um, glee at all for, for, what, for the experiences they're going through. And my, de- my deepest wish is to help them as much as I can. Uh, but it, it is. It's home and and that kind of environment is really what we're striving for to just to create in that town. And it's and it's home for everybody, not just Warren's followers. 
And I would just like to thank all of you guys because you have been so welcoming to to folks like myself who I just find it a really healing experience, um, community building experience. When, you know, I was troubled by the history, which is why I started the podcast. And, and it's been one of the greatest sort of blessings from this podcast is being able to interact with this community. So I appreciate you guys taking the time again, second time, to talk over these these issues. It really is complicated, but... I think that uh, you guys are doing good work. So can people contact you and reach out if they have questions or if they want to be involved? Is there a way to contact you? How do they do that? Um, yes. If they want to contact me, um, my email address is probably the best way to go. And that is sdraper at cherishfamilies.org. Um, and again, I mean, that's for people if they want to start volunteering or getting involved that way. If they have questions about the trust, probably directing them to the trust office is the best way. And we do have a website, and that's uptrust.org. Is that org or .com, Jeff? Uptrust.com. .com. And so um, there's a place on there to contact the trust. And, and so I think that, you know, questions regarding the trust and, and those kind of decisions and things should be directed through that website. But people wanting to volunteer or donate or get involved on the ground can contact me through email. And, um, yeah, I, I just I really encourage that. Um, one of the things that that I did want to point out, though, before we end is that, you know, a lot of people are saying that the government needs to come in there and intervene because they don't know what's going on and the trust board is doing all of this horrible stuff. And I just wanted to say we are working very closely with the governments of both states and they are very well in the loop. Um, a lot of communication back and forth about what's happening and they understand what's happening. So um, it's not like we're they're operating as a law unto ourselves. We definitely have rules and regulations that we have to abide. And we really, the trust board, really just wants the best interest of the community and the people. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you guys wanted to say that you didn't feel like you got an opportunity to say? Nothing for me. I I think I got it in, but you know, I'm, I'm very vocal. And if I need to say anything, I will, I will be saying it in various venues. <laughs> well, again, thank you guys for coming on and I appreciate uh, you being willing to talk about this. Thank you so much for, for the opportunity, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Be sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.